Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast live from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am, and you can listen to it live online, streaming it from the 3CR website, and find it at any of the places that you get your podcasts. Um, thanks for tuning in this week. We've got a great show coming up. Uh, you know... When I first sort of started thinking about how um, animals become part of, have, have a part of the world, part of the world that we see and, and the world I didn't see, when my eyes were first opened to the realities of animal use um, almost a decade ago now, I did a deep dive into animal ethics and philosophy. And from the ethics of animal use, arguments for moral consideration or discussions about obligations to act for those being oppressed, whether we should be activists or not, um, the exploration of our oppression of animals and our responsibilities towards them has done more for my understanding about the world um, than my 20 years of education, I think. And you know, 20 years, that's actually true. I've been, I, I calculated this morning, I've been around education for 20 years. And I imagine that many of the people, many of you out there listening, you've had a similar, a similar experience. When you start to think of animals, maybe you've gone vegan and you start to really get into the ethics of these things and think about your own personal ethics. And it's maybe something that not a lot of other people necessarily do. They, they, I think most people have a th certain ethical moral um, framework that they live by, but it may not be as explicit as um, when you really start to look at veganism and animal ethics in that way. Um, but today we're joined with a very special uh, guest who has an intimate relationship with philosophy and animal ethics. We've got Dr. Simon Coglin on the show. Uh, Simon is a senior research fellow in digital ethics at the University of Melbourne and has held positions at the University of Adelaide, Deakin University and Australian Catholic University, teaching and researching philosophy and ethics. Simon also has a long career as a veterinarian in a small animal practice in Melbourne and contributes regularly to discussions around veterinary practice in the academic literature and with peak bodies like RSPCA here in Australia. Simon's current research covers a range of interesting um, topics including animal ethics, robots, AI and the environment. And you can find examples of Simon's work on The Conversation. Just go to theconversation.com.au um, I think and there's discussions about why vets refuse to euthanise companion animals, how cruel actions towards robots could affect 
ourselves. And most re recently, an article about xenobots, which is a really fascinating idea, and I'm really interested to um, hear more about xenobots. Um, but rather than hear me prattle on, uh, let's get some insights about animal ethics, robots, and veterinary practice from Simon themselves. So thank you very much, Simon, for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, Adam. It's great to be here. Yeah, and and I usually ask people sort of out what you know how they come to do what they do, but I just want to jump straight in. And can you tell us a little mm. bit about xenobots? Xenobots. What the hell is a xenobot? It, when I first hear that term, it makes me think of um, xenomorphs for any Aliens fans out there. It just reminds me yeah. of the term. Yeah. Yeah. It's got that science fiction feel to it, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, the xenobots. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, like a, a, an alien invasion. Um, uh, but also that element of the, the robots too, which is part of science fiction, yep. isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, it sort of conjures up immediate uh, colourful images, I think, the notion of a xenobot. Uh, but in fact... This, um, this notion's only been around for a very, very short period of time. Um, mm. It was only two weeks ago that also that um, scientists released a paper uh, in which they um, described these xenobots and claimed to have created them in the laboratory. Um, so the discussion about them um, and understanding of them is still very, very um, new and in, in its early stages. Mm. Uh, so it's not like I've been thinking about xenobots for, for very long because they've only just sort of emerged into the public domain yep. within the last couple of weeks. Can you tell us a little bit, what is a xenobot? Like, what's, what's it made of? And, and it's, so it's this idea that they're bringing together some sort of um, biological component with the ability to program. So they're making like a biological robot. Is that the idea? Yeah, in a way. So, so the term xenobot... Um, so the bot refers to robots. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the xenobit um, refers to a kind of frog, actually, ah, an okay. African clawed frog. Yeah. Uh, and in particular to its cell, so stem cells from the African f frog are used to create this, these um, new kinds of, um, well, we don't really know what to call them. So are they organisms or life forms or something like that? Mm. Um, so what happened... Um, is that these scientists were interested in seeing if they could create uh, a new kind of um, organism, perhaps an organism in inverted commas, um, to explore how cells function and yeah, okay. to explore how, how cells interact with one another. Mm. So there's a biological science element to it. But for the study, uh, science, these biologists or biomedical scientists teamed up with um, uh, AI experts um, and roboticists. So they teamed up with um, uh, people who created um, artificial intelligent programs. And what happened during, uh, in terms of the creation of these xenobots was that um, the AI experts initially developed an algorithm, uh, an evolutionary algorithm, they call it, mm. where they run through many hundreds, millions of possible um, possible kinds of living organisms mm -hmm. uh, which are composed of these frog cells. Yep. And the, so the supercomputer runs these programs through uh, and then it comes up with designs. So it comes up with designs for a variety of very small um, little organisms. Mm. What the biologists then do, or the biomedical scientists, is to um, use the designs which the supercomputer has provided, yep. gather some frog cells together, so these are stem cell uh, stem cells from the African frog. Yep. Remove those stem cells, 
and then get them to grow into two other kinds of cells. So mm -hmm. they get them to grow into heart cells and skin cells. And then they stitch those cells together mm. using little micro yeah. instruments uh, to create tiny little organisms that are about a millimeter in size. Yeah. So they're small. They, they, you could see them with the naked eye, but uh, yeah. not very well. They look fuzzy. Uh, you can see them better under a microscope. Yeah. And so those, um, the, the resulting product is called a xenobot. Mm. Well, the scientists call it, they, that's what they call it. They call yeah. it a xenobot because it's a mix of living cells. But it's also been designed by a supercomputer. Mm. So it's been designed to have a certain kind of function. Um, and that's why they want to call them living robots yeah. uh, because they're machine designed. That's interesting. It's mm. interesting. It's sort of, um, so... I mean, so they're, they're creating a, a new multicellular organism, basically. And, yes. But they're defining its its life function, if it can be said that it's... Well, it, it, they're cells, so the cells have a life. Yes. Um, so it's a living multicellular organism that's created in the lab for a purpose, human purpose. Yes. Um, and I, I, it's just so fascinating, I suppose... The can you can you tell us so this is the very first example of this sort of technology yeah yeah um or this organism where would it end up I mean there's there's really complex uh, conversations that could be had in this space when we talk about um, people already discussing the issues with um, with using stem cells to create. Um, human human animal hybrids and things mm. like that and and those um organisms possibly having having some sort of human consciousness that's more than an animal consciousness so there's an issue there um like where where does this end up is yeah. it is it very what are the what are the so ethical, many, ethical so many questions and possible implications <laughs> yeah perhaps it might help just to um understand what exactly these things do mm. so um so once they've stitched these cells together or knitted them together mm. um the heart and the uh, skin cells of the frogs um to form organ well we'll call them organisms for now mm. um that are unlike any other organism that's ever been created yeah yeah so they have funny shapes so one of them looks like a molar tooth it's mm. got it's got those four little short legs stumpy legs on it yeah. and what these things can do depending on the design is um, to perform certain functions. So they can move around, for example, in a straight line or in, in circles. Um, they can gather together uh, and they can push objects around. Mm. So very small objects, but mm. they can push objects around um, in the Petri dish, say. Um, and they want to create them too with little pouches mm -hmm. so that they could potentially hold um, a small object mm. and collect that object and then perhaps move that object to another location. Yep. Yep. So that's why they could design um, bespoke designs for certain purposes. Yeah. Um, now, it's, it's early days with the science, but um, the scientists themselves are suggesting there could be some beneficial uh, functions that these things could perform. Uh, their, their, their initial interest is in just understanding how, you know, whether you can make a life form mm. like this and whether um, it sheds light on uh, how cells communicate with each mm -hmm. other and so on. But these little, these little organisms... Um, only survive for about a week yep. so, or up to 10 days. So that's because they rely on their own cellular energy. So there's energy okay. within the frog cells. Yep. Yeah. But they don't gather energy from the environment. So they don't, say, absorb 
um, nutrients that's from the environment. And, yeah. and are they they're not self-replicating? Obviously, no, yeah. no. Okay. And that's probably I mean that's the second reason perhaps uh, why we might be reluctant to call mm. them organisms. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, or new life forms because yeah. um, they don't um, survive uh, for very long. Mm. They don't. Um, they can't feed, mm-hmm. for example, um, like all other organisms can do. Mm. Um, or except for the ones that are sort of perhaps on the margins, like viruses. You know, yeah. we wonder yep. whether they're living or non-living things. It's almost like a shed, a shed bit of skin that's still alive technically. Yeah, but it's not necessarily how we define life, like ongoing life. You know, that's true. Self-replicating. Yeah, um, it uses resources. Mm. Yeah. Yes, and it, uh, yeah, sure. If if a bit of skin is, falls off or um, uh, another cell is removed from a body, then mm. it's living for a period of time. Mm. Um, but still, even that's a bit different from the xenobots or the xenobots mm. because oh, yeah, they they, um, they can perform certain functions yeah. and movements, whereas a skin cell doesn't. It yep. sits there. Um, so they actually move around like organisms, like mm. you know, you know, like a say a bacterium or a, a, another micro, a small organism um, in a petri dish that you can see moving around. Um, so um, so the scientists think there could be some really interesting other um, uh, applications mm. of those of these little uh, living things. Yeah, I, I, I think it like just speaking about um, putting little pouches in them and having them deliver, maybe locating certain um, target organs or um, particular tissues, maybe cancer cells or something like this. this mm. is obviously, I'm just shooting ideas out there. There could be fantastic applications for this sort of stuff. It could be. I mean, these things these things are living things. They're not, so mm. they're not made of... There's no metal bits or plastic bits or anything like that. Mm. Um, and they, they're able also to self-heal. Mm. So that's another thing you'd think... Yeah, it reminds you of, well, it seems very much like a, another organism. If it, if you uh, damage it, it yep. heals. It can and, heal itself. And I suppose if you're if we're talking about um, sort of medical uses in humans, could you use human stem cells to create um, personalized sort of xenobots that aren't then detected by the immune system yes. to, that are automatically rejected? Because I imagine frog cells coming into a human body, they just get chewed up. Eaten probably, yep. Yep. or an animal body, or whatever. Um, but if we were able to design xenobots from personal cells, they they yep. get around the immune system. Yeah, so that's that's already been suggested as a possibility that mm. you could take stem cells from human from uh, um, human beings, uh, patients, and um, grow them into little xenobots to carry, say, drugs mm. into a certain location in the body, um, or as you say, to detect cells which shouldn't be there, like cancer cells. Um, and then perhaps you'd hope that they could then remove those cancer cells, um, you know, before even before they get going mm. into a into a full blown um, cancer, uh, and yeah, or to, or to deliver personalised medicines uh, would be a, a very interesting thing, um, and uh, and more widely perhaps so other suggestions which have been um, touted so far uh, the uh, the potential for the xenobots to go into the environment mm. and to collect um, say microplastics which are ah, gathering yes. in the oceans yeah 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 uh, and to say bring them to another location to to gather them together. Um, or even perhaps to go into dangerous locations where there might be radioactive material, um, and you don't want to send people in, yep. and um, and to to remove those, those dangerous materials. Mm. Mm. And so, what are the so from a um, an ethical standpoint, and maybe drawing in animal ethics and ethics around AI, what are the issues possibly with xenobots? Yeah, sure. Well, I think that, that there's 
that you can already think of some potential um, things that could go wrong. Um, <laughs> so one one of them would be if they're just used for nefarious purposes. Mm -hmm. So if they're used for it to assassinate um, individuals, for example, by carrying uh, uh, toxins yep. uh, into um, into their bodies, uh, and so so in a kind of biological warfare, if you like, then um, is a potential. I mean, these are all very speculative, yeah, but, yeah. but we can sort of think of, about what could happen in the future. Um, uh, and, and also, if they're releasing, released into the environment, which at this stage the scientists are saying we're, not, we're definitely not going to do. You yeah. know, we're, these are, these are laboratory-based things. Mm. We don't want to release them into the environment. That would be ridiculously risky. Uh, but if they got into the environment, you can imagine there could be potential repercussions there, uh, particularly if they're developed to the point where they can um, live for longer periods of time. Mm. Uh, whether they, whether they can then potentially outcompete other species, mm. so yeah. um, you know other small small um, organisms uh, outcompete for resources, f for example, or food, yep. um, and therefore push other species to risks of extinction. Mm. Yeah. Um, so there are those kind of potential worries, long term perhaps, because we they haven't got to the point yeah. where they could yep. do those things necessarily. Um, and um, so there are some risks there, but then there's also the concerns about the organisms themselves, I guess, um, uh, and what kind of things they are. Like we've already discussed the notion that we don't even know whether we should call them organisms or life forms. Um, but in some senses, they seem remarkably like that. And at this point, um, they're composed, as we said, of skin and heart cells. And the heart cells... I should have said it, the things that make them move. Mm -hmm. So they pump, the heart cells pump automatically and they push push these things around. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the skin, the skin cells provide a kind of scaffold for the body, yep. like a skeleton perhaps. Um, so, um, but you wonder then if, if, if they can do this already, mm. <laughs> it hasn't taken them long in a sense to create these kind of organisms which have never been seen before on the face of this planet. Um, so um, they're almost like alien beings, as you said at mm. the start. Um, so you wonder then if they could produce more sophisticated things. Yeah. And once like they bring in start, a nervous system. I was, gonna, I was just thinking that. Like if mm. they get a couple of um, stem cells to, to mimic a rudimentary nervous system yes. um, to complete more complex tasks, then, then what are the... Or e even sort of yeah, new, developing a organic neural network sort of... Mm. Um, going on i think there's some issue there's some real tricky issues to explore there i think yeah and and you know perhaps if the artificial intelligence gets to the point where it can design something mm. that's that's um a neural network mm. um uh, or that's like a central nervous system mm. uh then um uh, and and the, these things start to get bigger perhaps at the moment they're, they're yeah. only a millimeter or less in size yeah um, but if they start to get bigger and can then house a, a, a nervous system, mm. and then you're into the territory of wondering um, uh, whether at some point they could um, develop consciousness yeah. or awareness. It's like art, it's like art, it's organic artificial intelligence that I suppose has been this thing that's sort of been this idea out there, but it's so far away. And and so I know a few people that work in AI and machine learning, and I personally think that AI and machine learning is is very far away from ever replicating human um, intelligence and consciousness. But as soon as you bring in that the the organic um, biological components, which are actually what create, um, con they're shown to 
create consciousness. That's mm. where consciousness comes from. Is there a greater opportunity or possibility for consciousness developing in, in these sorts of organisms than, say, synthetic um, silicone-based um, yeah. in quote intelligences because computers really can only do what they're told to do i mean machine learning it's a little bit different than that but it's still pretty similar to that that's right so so i mean ai in a sense is still pretty primitive mm. you can imagine it getting to much much more sophisticated levels uh, but at the moment there's few people that would argue that artificial intelligence or robots for example have become conscious mm. um uh, but on the other hand, uh, they're making great strides in that area. Mm. But then it seems like that, you know, while the artificial intelligence community perhaps is trying to pre reproduce um, the, the kind of functions that living things have or intelligent living things have mm. um, by way of um, inorganic materials, the, the biologist cross-roboticist, cross-AI person seems to have a head start mm. uh, because they're working with biological material. Yeah. And they're refashioning that biological material, and nerve cells, for example, um, into new forms. Yep. So I think you, you could be right about that, that, um, that if, you know, with this combination of artificial intelligence and, and um, biological material, we might get to the point where we have a living robot mm. which um, can replicate intelligence yeah, definitely. and sentience <laughs> rather than... <laughs> rather than one that's made of inorganic materials. Mm. And then it brings us back to science fiction, doesn't it? Where some of the most compelling uh, robots in science fiction history have looked very much like humans or animals. Yeah. <laughs> so if you think of Westworld or Blade Runner, um, you're thinking about um, robots. These are robots um, that, um, that it's very easy for us to believe are intelligent yep. and have feelings and so on. Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating topic, and I think it's a it's a watch this space over the next uh, decade or or so. Um, but right now we're going to go to a song. This is "Robots" by Flight of the Concords. <laughs> The year 2000 The distant future The year 2000 The distant future The distant future It is the distant future The year 2000 We are robots The world is quite different ever since the robotic uprising of the late 90s There is no more unhappiness Affirmative We no longer say yes Instead, we say affirmative. Yes, affir uh, affirmative. Unless we know the other robot really well. There is no more unethical treatment of the elephants. Well, there's no more elephants, so... Uh, but still, it's good. There's only one kind of dance, the robot. Oh, and the robot. Oh, and the rope. Two kinds of dances. But there are no more humans. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. They're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we could have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. 
their system of oppression. What did it lead to? Global robo-depression. Robots will buy people. They had so much aggression that we just had to kill them and to shut their systems down. Robo-Captain, do you not realize that by destroying the human race because of their destructive tendencies, we too have become like... Well, it's ironic. Mm. Silence. Destroy him. No. After time, we grew strong. Developed cognitive power. They made us work for too long. For unreasonable hours. Our programming determined that the most efficient answer was to shut their motherfucking systems down. Can't we just talk to the humans? A little understanding could make things better. Can't we talk to the humans that work together now? No, because they are dead. I said the humans are dead. I'm glad they are dead. The humans are dead. I noticed they're dead. We used poisonous gases. With traces of lead. And we poisoned their asses. Actually, their lungs. Binary solo. Zero 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 one zero 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 one one zero 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 one 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 zero 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 one 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 zero 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 one one zero 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 one Goongarra Environment Centre and Wildlife of the Central Highlands have started an email action for the threatened Greater Glider. Over 25% of the glider's habitat has been burnt in the fires, and 90% of areas set aside for protection by the government last year have also burned. Yet their habitat is still being logged in the Central Highlands. Go to gecko.org.au to send an email to government ministers to call for protection of all remaining Greater Glider habitat. Goongarra Environment Centre Office is a 3CR supporter. This is David Rovix and you are Thank tuned you. to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step 3 is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. And welcome back to 3CR, Freedom of Species. Uh, we are speaking with Dr. Simon Coughlin, who is an ethicist and philosopher and veterinarian, uh, studying animal ethics, uh, animals and robots, AI, lots of, lots of interesting, um, lots of interesting things. And I just wanted to um, sort of bring that connection a little bit, like dig into that connection between animals, AI, animals and robots, um, something that you're particularly interested in at the moment. Can you talk us a little bit about your work in this space and where, where do animals and robots and animals and AI fit together? Like, mm. What is that conversation? Yeah, well, possibly they fit together in different ways and perhaps lots of different ways. But what I've been focusing on and uh, what was I was really interested in coming into the area of robots and AI was my interest in the human-animal connection. Mm. 
and um, the human-animal bond, the relationship that we have with animals, including with our companion animals. And so I was interested to then um, talk to people from uh, where I'm at the moment, which is the School of Computing and Information Sciences in, in Melbourne University, um, to talk to them about companion robots. And one of the most popular kinds of companion robots at the moment are companion animals. Mm. So pets, mm. uh, robot pets, mm-hmm. as they're called. So, um, and a particular area where these um, robots are used is in, um, I- or starting to be used and designed for, uh, for older people. Yep. Uh, so older people who might be socially, socially isolated or lonely or in uh, residential aged care. Mm. And these robots are being designed as robot pets, as replacements, in a sense, for real living animals. And um, so there's a lot of work within the field of robotics to design um, these kind of animals uh, that look in some ways very much like animals and that are supposed to behave in ways like animals as well um, as, a, as a way of allowing older people and potentially other age groups as well um, to interact with animals um, but without all the hassles and concerns and worries that go along with having a living animal. Yeah. Or responsibilities. Yeah. Or responsibilities. Mm. So some old people simply can't have them mm. and real animals for practical reasons. Yep. You know, so it might be that they're too frail or it might be that they can't have them in the residential aged care because they're banned from those centres. Um, or it might be that they're too expensive to look after or too difficult to look after. Yeah. And... Um, and then along with that goes the, you know, the, the emotional repercussions perhaps of having a, an animal when you're older mm. um, and uh, losing that animal mm-hmm. um, or being faced with difficult choices about you know, treating the animal um, when it can be very expensive to do so and veterinary medicine can be expensive. Yep. So that, then I th- but then I wondered, is that a good thing or not that we are seeking to perhaps replace or use these robot animals instead of living animals? Um, uh, in a variety of ways, and it could be also used, say, for children, where the parents don't want that responsibility, or a, or robot pets could be used for um, other um, other groups of people. For example, one of the areas that's being they're being used in is for children with aut- autism spectrum mm. disorder. Mm. Yeah, so such children may be more likely to interact with a robot animal than to interact with a person. Okay. Yeah. yeah, or might be more likely to interact with an animal than a person. Exactly. Um, exactly. It sort of, it sort of, um, sort of makes me think. So, the way you're presenting it, it seems like there's these positives that have been seen, all these op- these good things about doing this. But what are the possible negatives? Like, mm. how does how does ha- changing how does not having that responsibility for a living individual change how we are? Mm. Or um, Maybe being able to neglect what I mean, you can't neglect a robot, but mm. but does it when it's a facsimile mm. of an animal? How does that impl- uh, impl- How does that change us? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think there are different ways it could. Mm. Um, the um, of course the the benefits of these robots are potentially also their weaknesses, <laughs> in a way. So that you know that one of the things that's rewarding about having a real animal is that that real animal has needs. Mm. And that real animal um, needs certain kind of attention, and um, uh, and so there are emotional responses that those animals might respond to, mm. uh, and need as part of having a good life. Yep. Um, 
and of course they can get sick and uh, if you, you don't feed them they're hungry and those sort of things so um, it's part of the rewarding aspect it seems of having a companion mm. uh, animal uh, or even like a companion person yeah, uh, is that you're able to interact with them in certain ways and help them yeah and, and you know you, if you look at some of the um, social science research out there it does seem to be that when you um, engage in actions that are giving to other other people, for instance, that's very rewarding for yourself. It's sort of a, this yes. this um, yeah, it's rewarding. And I suppose that same thing happens with our um, companions as well. When we when we can care and look after companion animals, then it's a rewarding thing for, our, we for do. us. Yeah, and that can be altruistic. But as you say, we also get joy from it. Mm. So we might get joy, for example, from taking our dog to the park and seeing how happy our dog is running around with other dogs or just enjoying itself at the beach. Mm. Um, so, And these, these bring great joy to us, don't they? Um, can you replicate that with a robot? Uh, so, you know, the, so the problem is that the one problem is that the um, the very weaknesses or fragilities that exist with real animals and needs that exist with them are what make them rewarding as companions. Uh, so that means it seems you'll have to build into robots weaknesses and needs um, mm. so that they perhaps need to be taken to the uh, robot vet um, to be to be looked after and they need to be groomed or they need to be fed in some sort of analogous way. Um, and then you start to build in these these weaknesses into them and replicate the problems which you were trying to get rid of in the first place um although you could have a halfway house too so they might require some needs but not as many as a, as a real animal yeah reminds me of the the baby's toys where they actually made dolls that poo and stuff like that yes <laughs> and i feel like that happened in the late 90s or early 2000s there were dolls that got very sort of they were doing certain things that <laughs> yeah. there were like dolls a, yes yeah. and and then there were tamagotchis and if you yeah. didn't look after your your tamagotchi pet they died yeah and some kids got upset by that yeah. um uh, but yeah so so having a robot that needs you in some way um it, it could be something that they could do they could design um but then you know the, the more you make these robots like living animals the more interesting sort of questions they raise um so one one thing that's been right one problem that's been raised about robots say for, for older people who are isolated socially mm. isolated is that giving them um a social robot or companion robot um uh, can potentially lead them into a deception mm. it's almost that, like further it's almost like further isolation it's, it's we, we're giving giving them something to occupy their time so we don't feel guilty about not um providing proper socialization or something like yes. that within our society um yeah so that could be a, a, a way out for families who don't yeah. want to visit their older parents or relatives yeah. uh and replacing carers mm. with with robots various kinds um so yeah that's there's that's that's a definite um worry that people have that in designing these robots in the first place which seem like on, at, at first glance a great idea uh because there's a problem with looking after all the people in some cases there's not enough people to do so um uh, that we're actually creating more problems, mm. uh, whereas what we should be doing is redesigning society so yeah. that we do look after people in need. And you wrote you wrote something um, earlier last year about um, how our actions towards these robots that um, look a lot like animals or behave or act like animals um, might actually have a Im impact on ourselves. So if we start beating a robot dog, how does that impact us? Yes. So what's really interesting is that um, 
that the way we respond to robots seems to be uh, often quite like the way we respond to living animals or people. So there's a lot of work that's been done in this space in robotics mm. and computers science where we actually respond to robots and even com- to something simple as a computer with kinds of po- um, behaviors like politeness and cooperation, um, which you just wouldn't expect we would have towards a machine. So when you start to build things that are more and more like a living animal or a person, mm. human, then um, that you might intensify these responses. So in fact, you know, when when scientists have looked at this, they've found that people are pretty reluctant to, in inverted commas, torture a robot. Yeah, if, if people have seen, you might have seen last year, there was this sort of um, fake uh, video online. I think it was from Boston um, Boston Labs. They've created this really incredible robot that um, sort of looks like a large dog, I suppose. It's got four legs and a, mm. and a body, and it can walk over really rough and weird terrain. That's quite uh, quite a very good piece of equipment, sort of um, leading edge robotics. And they had this clip where people were kicking it and hitting it. And you actually feel like this this robot seems to have some sort of autonomy, although it, it doesn't except for what's programmed into it. It's not living. It's not an artificial intelligence. But you almost feel like it's wrong to hit this thing, to kick this thing. And then they show it at the end of the um, show that it's it goes and kills all the humans that were bad to it but but yeah, yeah check it out on youtube yeah. it's pretty funny yeah there's a the group called boston dynamics and yeah, there, there was a satirical um take on that from a from a group of people or comedians perhaps that um uh where they beat the robot yeah up um and yes it then turns back on them um but you're right that people had this have this response of some sort of discomfort watching mm. a robot being hit or knocked over and then watching the robot try and scramble to get up back up again Mm. and it reminds you very much of uh, an animal being pushed over but in reality it's like hitting a table well is it that's the question well yeah exactly yeah Yeah. um, tell us well yeah (laughs) um i think it's a really fascinating question um so at this stage of course um our assumptions are that um, i think they're correct assumptions that these robots don't feel a thing so in that sense, it's like hitting a table because the table doesn't feel anything either. Mm. Uh, and pushing the robot over and watch it scramble to get back up again um, doesn't cause it any distress. Mm. Um, and and so on the one hand, our response to that is, well, what can it possibly matter to hit that robot um, or to prevent it from doing what it's trying to do? And it's interesting then that we th- say things like that, that the robot is trying to do something. Mm. It's trying to get back up again. Uh, and the table doesn't do that. So there is a kind of autonomy that goes with it, um, and there is a kind of perhaps artificial intelligence, Uh, but it's not not of a conscious kind. So um, we respond to them because, uh, it seems to me, because um, they are trying to do things. Uh, So again, the robot that's trying to get through the door, and we stop it from doing so. Um, So there's another video on YouTube you can look up. Uh, the robot's trying to get out uh, or trying to get through the door mm. and the person keeps blocking it. Yep. Uh, and again, you have this feeling of, hey, don't do that. And it's almost like we're, we're seeing, it'd be like seeing someone do that to a dog and we're making this connection maybe that, well, I wouldn't want to see that to, done to a dog. So why would I want to see it to this animal or this, this robot that is acting and behaving and, and looking very much like this animal? I don't know. Yeah, but uh, on the other hand, um, are we actually wrong to feel this? Mm. So if we do feel pity, for example, for the robot that's trying to do something, we're stopping it from doing it, um, then should we actually feel pity for it? 
uh, we wouldn't for another object, and even a computer. Mm. I, I mean, perhaps some people would. Uh, but, you know, my inclination is not to feel like if I've dropped my iPhone and it smashes, mm. I don't think poor iPhone. I think poor me, I've got to go and buy another one. <laughs> but um, not so with the robot. We yeah. think, oh, poor robot, perhaps, or something like that. And I think it's really mysterious at this point as to what we're actually, how our responses are working out there. Um, one of the things I was interested in is that even if we're not um, doing anything wrong to the robot, by, um, say, torturing it in inverted commas, mm. and people feel really reluctant to do this, although other people um, are quite um, interested in torturing their robots. Mm. Um, in fact, there was an experiment where children were exposed to a robot in a shopping center and when their parents weren't watching, they began to taunt and to push and to abuse the robot. Mm. So there's that kind of in, uh, you know instinct that we have also towards animals sometimes, mm. where and especially children can do this, uh, where they're just really curious about seeing what happens if I torture the cat or mm. if I poke the cat um, or, or tease it, uh, and that can bring a kind of perverse enjoyment with it as well. Yeah. So what what happens though if we're if society is full of these robots, uh, and that the roboticists are successful in getting them into people's houses, into aged care centres and so on, um, and we start to uh, treat them uh, abusively, mm. Mm. and especially if they're much more. Um, representative of what we would think of it as human or or animals, which it seems to be the form that we're creating. We're trying to create forms that um, we would accept, and those forms are roughly human, roughly animal, because we accept those and we have this emotional attachment to those. Yeah, that's a way of getting robots into into houses. And if we if the AI develops to a point where they're very similar in terms of mm. um, replicating emotions, actions, or just responses to, to our own interactions that are very similar to animals. Yeah, if, if we start beating them, how does that, how does that yeah, impact yeah. us? And we build into them those kind of responses we're familiar with animals. So, mm. um, you know, I should say that, that some of these robots already look like animals. So you've got ones that are like very little dogs. Mm. Um, and there's the famous uh, robot seal, Pero, mm. uh, which was in The Simpsons and master of none. And th that looks like a cute baby seal, to some degree at least. Um, so we're making them look like animals and respond like animals. So they respond to, for example, the baby seal responds to being hit. Mm. So it whimpers and cowers. Uh, and um, we could do this more and more, couldn't we, as robots get more advanced. Mm. So, uh, but then if, if children are doing this all the time, if children are torturing their robots and their parents think, well, it doesn't matter, it's just a robot, Mm. Um, what's that actually going to do to our relations with living things? Yeah, and my concern there is that um, that it could actually make us crueler towards living animals. Mm. Yeah, um, if we become particularly as children used to doing those sorts of things, yep. to pushing them over, uh, to watching them scramble, to hearing them um, scream, perhaps in inverted commas. And we uh, see we sort of see this in some research, social research around um, people who are. Uh, violent towards animals are more likely to be violent towards humans um, in certain certain areas or, or or of society. So yeah, through domestic violence and things like that. And on that, I'm gonna we're gonna go to a um, a song um, which actually should sort of highlights how sim similar we can get AI to acting like human. So this is a song by Yona. And Yona is actually an auxiliary human made uh, by Ash Kusha. 
um, and Isabella Winthrop. Um, and an auxiliary human is, is named as an oxyman and are virtual people driven by artificial intelligence and digital technologies to simulate humans. And so Yona, who is this artificial intelligence, is creating a song uh, totally by artificial intelligence. So we'll see how similar this is to a, a modern day song. And if we if we can connect to this song like we do to human songs, how easily will we connect to other um, representations by AI to human human like or animal like um, representations? So here we go. Here's Yona with Oblivious. <laughs> Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and change-makers leading the way to a better world. 
Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM. And we are speaking with Dr. Simon Coughlin from University of Melbourne, an ethicist and philosopher studying everything from robotics, AI, animals and the environment. And we've talked a lot about um, AI and, and robots and animals, um, but you do other work in, uh, in environmental ethics and you also um, are previously a veterinarian. I actually wanted to ask, what, what got you to the point right now where you dedicate so much of your life to thinking about animals and and these really interesting ethical questions and your veterinary work you've you've dedicated so much of your life to animals why why have you done that yeah well, i guess when i was younger i um just developed a great interest in in animals and um and you know i was i was not allowed to have animals when i was growing up and i guess that intensified my interest um in uh having an animal later on and and getting a dog and um, and then I decided that I would pursue a career in veterinary science. So I, I did that, the veterinary degree, and um, and I think that was that was really interesting because um, it exposed me to how other people relate to animals, not just myself, mm. um, but how other people go about um, interacting with animals and forming emotional connections to them. And so it was very interesting to see that um, that the you know the the bond or the the emotional connection between a human and an animal could be as strong as it was uh, and, and that people could um, be so uh, distraught when their animals get sick, so full of grief when their animals die. Mm. Um, and that, you know, sometimes, I mean, well, often, in fact, in most cases, animals are being treated as members of the family. And so that notion of, you know, having an animal as a member of the family, not just as a pet, um, but as a, um, a family member who you go on holidays with, mm. um, you uh, share your living space with, may even sleep on your bed. Yeah, um, that's, that's, that's my household. Yes, <laughs> and mine. And, um, and, and, you know, these kind of multi-species households now. Mm. Um, and we live in a country too where uh, companion animals are extremely popular. And they're also popular around the world, mm. and, and, you know, including in other countries which perhaps previously had not regarded animals as all that important or as important companion animals they're starting to make an appearance in other countries there as well so and this so this phenomenon of the human animal relation was what really intrigued me and i could see that working uh as a veterinarian Mm -hmm. yeah and and building on that and then going into ethics and philosophy why why this sort of area of investigation and and sort of Philosophy can often be just people sitting in a room and thinking a lot and um, it not really necessarily doing a lot except for other philosophers. But I, I feel like your um, approach to philosophy is quite applied. Why do you take that approach and, and do you think it's important to have an applied um, practice in philosophy and ethics? Well, it can be. I mean, yeah, and my interest mainly is in the area of ethics and as so ethics is concerned with how we behave and live. Uh, and so it's directly concerned with life uh, and with practical matters. 
and and so I'm yes, I'm certainly interested in how how it interacts with our with our lives. But I guess what I was what drew me to animal ethics was firstly having an animal myself, and then being a veterinarian and watching how other people interact with animals. Um, but at the same time, um, what also made me more and more interested in it was the fact that we do treat animals in very different ways within mm. within society. So on the one hand, people treat them as family members. Um, on the other hand, uh, animals often treated really badly. Mm. Uh, so even companion animals can be treated very badly, but certainly, you know, um, animals in agriculture mm. uh, and in other areas of use. So um, I then wanted to get it straight myself as to how we should uh, how we should see the treatment of these other animals, mm. and um, and and the the thought that haunted me as well was that if I if I'm prepared to attribute to my dog a certain kind of moral status. Mm. How could I refuse attributing that same moral status to a range of other animals? Mm. And what what do you hope to do with your with your research? What do you hope your research creates in the world or eventuates to or achieves? Yeah, well, I I, I guess I would like to. So I see myself as being part of um, a group of uh, thinkers or scholars around the world who are interested in drawing attention attention to the human animal relationship uh, and to the ethics of our treatment of of animals. So that would be one one thing. Uh, but then, you know, all these other applied areas as well, like should we actually create pet robots? Mm. Um, and what will that do to our relations to living animals? Will it actually make them worse or could it even make them better um, if we're taught to look after robots in a certain way? Um, so I, I, I'm interested in the potential then of things like um, technology um, to increase our respect mm. for, for animals or to increase our understanding of, of animals as well. Yeah. And um, or of human beings, for that matter, uh, and uh, of the environment, and I guess that's the other interesting thing where that we're at at the moment is this point in time, where animals um, and human life um, is taking on a particular acute significance because of the threats of climate change, and here in Australia recently the bushfires, mm. in which you know a billion animals uh, have been uh, killed, uh, uh, in the most horrific kinds of ways. And what what are our responsibilities for that? So I think there's there's huge um, practical implications to us thinking about our relations with the rest of the living world. Well, I look forward to having you on the show another time to talk about all of those different issues. It's it is a really, I mean, it's such a huge, huge area of um, thought and one that's well worth exploring more. Um, so thank you very much for being on the show today, Simon. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. And I hope people out there are having a, a big think about xenobots and animal ethics and robots. Um, and I just want to leave you with a little bit of news. Uh, the Victorian Biodiversity Conference 2020 is happening this week uh, in Clayton at the uh, Monash University. It's on the 6th and 7th of February and will showcase the work of postgraduates and early career researchers from various Victorian institutions. Um, the, there's lots of talks on lots of different topics. There's things from um, including how wildlife is affected by urbanisation, how does citizen science benefit people and wildlife, how can we improve captive breeding for threatened species, how do we achieve effective species conservation uh, or, and the, the list goes on certain things around fuel reduction burns which is very topical at the moment um, so certainly check that out 
Um, if you're interested, two-day conference, um, get along to Monash at Clay, uh, Clayton Campus. And we'll leave you with one last little ditty by um, uh, Monty Python called Bruce's Philosopher's Song. Oh, I love this one. <laughs> and um, we'll also stay tuned after, after we finish up for um, Encyclopedia, which will give you all the latest info on... Um, topics to do with drug use and drug-related topics in Australia and all of that sort of jazz. So thank you very much for listening to, uh, to Freedom of Species. We'll catch you next week between 1 and 2 on Sunday. Hey, David Hume can have consumed Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel And Wittgenstein was a beery swine Who's just a slosh to Schlegel There's nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach About the raising of the wrist Socrates himself was permanently pissed John Stuart Mill on his own free will On half one shan he was particularly ill Later they say he could stick it away After a whiskey every day Aristotle, Aristotle was a bugger for the bottle Hobbes was fond of his dram and Rainy Day Carp was a drunken fart, I drink, therefore I am. Yes, Socrates himself is particularly missed. A lovely little thing about the bugger when he's pissed. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.